Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. And you can visit our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're very grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. Now, we have a very interesting show today. Myself and John are going to discuss a recent article that John wrote for the Irish Story about Ireland and the Anglo-Zulu War. Hello, John. Hey, Colin. Now, what brought your interest to writing about the Anglo-Zulu War? Well, it's always been an interest of mine, actually, the Anglo-Zulu War, or the Zulu War, as it used to be known, prompted partly by the classic Michael Caine film from 1963, Zulu. And, you know, the war, it seems to be like a kind of, a, not only a clash of civilizations, but almost of times, you know, so you've got British redcoats armed with the latest firearms, and you've got Zulus armed with spears, you know, fighting each other. And there's something kind of very uh, dramatic about that, I suppose. It also kind of represents very vividly the European conquest of Africa in a kind of very romanticized kind of form because, you know, the Zulus were fairly unusual in having like a large standing army and there being massive pitched battles and stuff like that. But, you know, I think visually and, you know, as a story, it's very dramatic. So, you know, I was reading about the Zulu War, the Anglo-Zulu War for a long number of years, but in recent years, you know, I noticed a lot of Irish connections and also in more recent times than the last few months, I came upon the literature about the reaction in Ireland itself, which is almost as interesting from our point of view. And it does tie in with the recent trend of talking about Ireland's relationship, very complicated relationship with the British Empire. So, John, to start off, to put it this really in context, can you talk about British colonial expansion in Southern Africa in this period? The major important British imperial possession was, of course, India, which was a massively rich and populous subcontinent, which the economy, I think, of the British Empire and a strategic linchpin and everything else depended. So South Africa originally was just important because it controlled one of the sea routes to India. So the, the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Town, where ships stopped to provision. During the Napoleonic Wars, revolutionary France took over the Netherlands and reclaimed it, the Batavian Republic and so on. But the British went and took Cape Town, which was a Dutch colony at the time, from the Dutch in 1795 as a means of securing the sea route to India. So that was the first thing they were doing in South Africa. They annexed Cape Province in 1806. And, you know, they inherited this kind of restive collection of Dutch uh, and other origin, Huguenot, French and German and Portuguese, but collectively known as Boers. And also the native population, which, you know, was, was very much a mixture in the Cape Colony. But as you move further east from the Kaza people, of the frontier way over to the 
to the Zulus on the on the other coast, you know, the, you had a much more kind of homogenous Nguni, I believe is the right pronunciation, African population. But initially they were just there to protect the, the sea route to India. The Boers themselves didn't much like being under British rule for a number of reasons. One of the reasons being, unfortunately, that the British abolished slavery and some of the Boers resented this. They thought that slavery was mandated to them as, as Christian people. Very interestingly, uh, as kind of an aside, the Boers adopted the Muslim word via Malaysian traders, I believe, kufar or unbeliever or kafir, you know, as a disparaging name for Africans, but actually it means unbeliever in Arabic. It's a strange one, but in any case, the Boers or some of the Boers trekked eastwards over the mountains and they founded new republics, three new republics actually in the east of what's now South Africa, one in Natal, uh, one in the Orange Free State and one in the Transvaal. And, you know, the, for the British, these were restive subjects. They couldn't just allow them to go establishing new countries, especially if they got a route to the sea. So the British caught up with the Boers in 1843 and they annexed the Republic of Natal. Now, Natal happened to bump up against the most powerful African kingdom in the region, which was the Zulu kingdom. So, John, can you tell us something about the Zulu kingdom? There's this kind of very naive idea out there at the moment uh, in the media and stuff that everything is utopian in Africa before the Europeans arrived. And that's, of course, not the case. So in southeastern Africa, just in the period we're talking about from the 1800s to about the 1820s, there's a period of tremendous conflict, which is known as the Imphakeni. Now, apologies for any Izizulu speakers for the butchery that I'm going to do to your language, pronouncing the names. But the Imphakeni is um, translated as the crushing. So it's a period of conflict. We think it's brought on by conflict over resources. So possibly a rising population coupled with drought. But as a result, you get these militarized kingdoms emerging with kind of standing armies of all the available men. They're, they're grouped in regiments based on their age, which are called Amabutu or Ibutu in singular. And the Zulus basically emerged as the winners in this. The very famous King Shaka, you know, who was very adept and very ruthless military commander, created the Zulus as kind of, kind of an African Sparta, if you like. I mean, every man uh, had to serve as a soldier. And it wasn't just the soldier of a clan chieftain in his local area. He was summoned to a central barracks, if you like, called Amakanda. And they were, had to serve at the pleasure of the king. So it's, it's a kind of a standing army. They're not allowed to go home until they get married, but the king is the one who, who permits them to get married. And he also selects the, you know, a female age kind of regiment for them to marry. Now, women didn't generally fight, although the king's bodyguard, the last Zulu king, last independent Zulu king, Cachueo, actually had a female bodyguard, incidentally. But the Zulus, you know, they, they emerged as the preeminent kind of military power in the region. And unfortunately for the Zulus, they had just about beaten all their African enemies and scattered them. And, and some of the uh, defeated powers, like the Ndebili people, went up to what's now Zimbabwe, um, in the middle was Rhodesia, and they founded their own kingdom there, kind of on the Zulu model. And, and refugees came as far as the Cape, and this was the British first kind of contact with the Zulus. But unfortunately for the Zulus, just as they'd beaten all their African enemies, the Boers arrived with their muskets and their cannons and their horses, and the Boers didn't crush the Zulus or anything, but they managed to defeat them enough, famously in the, the Battle of Blood River, which Afrikaner nationalists used to commemorate, to carve out their own republic just on the Zulu borders in Natal. And as I said, the British, there had been some British traders there in Natal at the same time and just before the Boers, but British presence arrived in 1843 and ex-Natal. The Zulus were at first reasonably keen or reasonably happy to see the British because they were the enemies of the Boers and they drove the Boers out of Natal. So from 1843, when the British arrived up until 1879, uh, the British in Natal and the Zulus rather got on relatively well the Zulus viewed them as an ally against the Boers. Well, this is the interesting thing, I think, for people reading back in history when they're looking at 
these type of conflicts and they see native populations who aren't armed with, as you said, their muskets and rifles, uh, how they could possibly stand up against modern European armies. And of course, I mean, you know, let's be honest, they didn't as long as the uh, more modern armies, you know, deployed themselves intelligently. But, but we'll come to that, I suppose. But that is the thing as well, is that does it lead as well to the racism and the denigration of native populations that there was never going to be any way where they could be incorporated as equals into a new colonial order in South yeah. Africa? Yeah, and I mean, again, let's be honest and frank about this. Uh, you know, racism was absolutely pervasive in, in 19th century Europe. Of the two European powers on the borders of the Zulu Kingdom, the Boers were the most openly racist. You know, the, I mean, the, not, not that they were readers of Darwin or whatever, but like they, they believed that they were superior and God had made them superior. And they had a very Old Testament kind of justification for it. And as I said, their term for natives was Kufar, you know, the Arabic term, unbeliever. In the British case, you know, the ostensible justification was that, well, the natives are not civilized enough yet. You know, so in Natal, it was possible for black people to be enfranchised, you know, provided they were literate and Christian, I think, and they had enough property. So, you know, the British Empire had this kind of certain hypocrisy about this, that they were just preparing people for civilization. But uh, according to the washing of the spears, which is a classic history of the Zulu kingdom by Donald Myers from the 60s, a total of seven Africans had been enfranchised in Natal by 1900, you know, by which time the British had been there 60 years or so. So when we look at somewhere like India as well, we have this mixture of principalities, which are supposedly independent and self-governing and then directly ruled British states. There never seems to be a case that the Zulu kingdom could be completely autonomous and self-ruling under a general British sovereignty. Well, that was considered, and it's interesting you bring up India because the administrator concerned here, Shabartal Freer, who was the, the governor of the Cape Colony and later of the prospective South Africa, and he had served in India, and he very much did have that in mind. So initially, the idea with the Zulu Kingdom was, like, we'll come on to the reason why they abandoned peaceful relations with the Zulu Kingdom, but the, the idea that Freer had was that, yes, you, you would have like a, a kind of a princely state, just like in India, it would have a British resident, but he wanted to partition it up between the different chiefs and different clans within the Zulu kingdom, the idea being to break up this standing army, which was the linchpin of, of the state. And they did try to do this throughout South Africa, like, for example, the Basutus and various others were made kind of equivalent of princely states in the British Union of South Africa, and a kingdom which very closely resembled the Zulu kingdom, the Swazi kingdom, which was to the north, was left entirely independent, actually, but again, with a, a British resident. So they did actually apply the Indian model very closely in South Africa as well. But the difference with the Zulu kingdom was that, again, they had this very powerful, very well-trained uh, standing army, which could be summoned by the king kind of at a moment's notice. And what Freer figured was two things. One was that this was a threat to Natal. Now, this was despite uh, the king at the time, Ketueo's adamant insistence that he was a friend of the British. And he even let uh, Shepstone, who was the commissioner for native affairs, crown him in a coronation ceremony to prove his friendship. But Freer reckoned that there was various campaigns against the native African kingdoms and states in 1877 to 78 as part of what they called the confederation policy the idea being to create a confederation of south africa along the lines of canada actually but uh freer reckoned that the example of this powerful independent kingdom was a bad example to all the other black african dates and kingdoms in the region and that's why yeah you had to go and break up the zulu kingdom 
Well, where do we get to break then? Where do relationships break down between the Zulu Kingdom and the British? Well, there's two answers to that question. The first one is that in the 1860s, diamonds were discovered in the Transvaal in one of the Boer republics. And, you know, with these mineral resources, Carnivan, who was the foreign secretary, and, and Bayahim Freer, who was the, the man on the spot, figured that they would have enough money, basically resources, to create a confederation of South Africa, to pull the whole thing together. You know, again, the ultimate strategic aim being to secure the sea route to India, which is the overriding priority. The diamonds meant that it could pay for itself. So at that point, they annexed the Boer Republic in 1877, the Transvaal, the South African Republic, to get at the diamonds. They fought the last war against the Khaza, the Ninth Frontier War. So there were nine previous wars against the Khaza, where they destroyed the last of the independent Khaza states on the frontier, the Cape Frontier. They fought a war against a guy whose name I can't really pronounce, Sikuhuna, I think is the right pronunciation up in the Transvaal, and other ones there in the, in the south of South Africa. So various minor wars. And so, you know, the linchpin of Freer's plan, as I said, was you had to destroy the Zulu kingdom in order to subdue the rest. Also, I suspect that it was kind of a, it was viewed as a kind of olive branch to the Boers, having annexed one of their republics that you eliminate their, their old enemy on their border. And the Boers might get a lot of their grazing land, which just like the Zulus themselves was kind of their, their main source of wealth. But the short term reason, you know, the proximate reason in historians kind of jargon was that the first one, uh, Shepstone and Freer tried to provoke a crisis over Boer claims to land in Zululand. The Boers claimed that they had been granted these lands in the treaty which ended their war with the Zulus back in the 1830s and the Zulus said it wasn't the case. And so a commission was set up to, to look into it and a very embarrassingly for Shepstone and Freer, the commission in 1877 came back and said, actually, no, that the treaty said, no, these particular lands belong to the Zulus under that treaty. And so they had to provoke another crisis and the other crisis presented itself in 1878 when it, a border chieftain called Suwayo, his sons were promised to some young ladies, young, young Zulu women, and they didn't like the match. Um, they fled over the border into Natal, into British rural territory, and Suwayo's sons went to get them for the disrespect they'd showed them and brought them back into Zululand and, and killed them. And Shepstone and Freer sent a message to Ketchwayo saying this is a violation of Natal's sovereignty. It was an aggressive act, and that they sent an ultimatum in response saying that within 30 days, Kachweo had to abolish the Zulu army, so the linchpin of the kingdom. He had to accept a British resident, so kind of a British governor, and he accept, had to accept all kinds of other things where the British were going to remodel his kingdom. And Kachweo, you know, was aghast at this because, you know, the last thing he wanted was, was war with the British. And he, say, he sent back a message saying, you know, you were, you were going to break up my kingdom for the sake of your foolish children. So it was, you know, he wouldn't have even had time to, to break up the army, even had he wanted to. So... When the ultimatum ran out, British forces under Lord Chelmsford, Frederick Thesiger, his given name, invaded Zululand. And then that was the start of the war. It is interesting reading back about it, the reports of the ultimatum and stuff, that it is in a period where public opinion back in Britain or like, you know, in Europe, isn't going to play any role in how the, the British government or the colonial administrators in South Africa proceed. So it is really shameless. To yeah, I mean, the thing about it, I wouldn't quite agree with that. I know where you're coming from, but like public opinion did play a role. It was just a little bit slower in those days, you know, it took because it took news a little bit longer to travel than it would today. But it did actually play a part. Or lead, in the lead up to the war, uh, when they were busy trying to provoke a crisis, Freer and Shepstone mounted this big media campaign and they got loads of stories in the papers about how there was this tyrannical kingdom on their borders of savage warriors 
And they made a big thing of the idea that the warriors weren't allowed to marry until their 30s or 40s. So the idea was that their sexual aggression was pent up. You know, Victorians love this stuff, right? Their sexual aggression was pent up and that they had to unleash this in, unleash this in savage violence. And it was a matter of time before they spilled over the border and all like this. And, you know, none of which was the case because like Ketrio was smart enough not to want a war with the British. Apart from anything else, he viewed the British as a counterweight to the Boers. And on the sexual aggression thing, the Zulu social mores, I believe, did allow people to have sex outside of marriage as long as they didn't get pregnant, I believe. But, you know, no, that, so that was out the window. But, like, they, they did actually prepare public opinion. Now, as regards the British government itself, like the Prime Minister was Disraeli at the time, there's been a certain amount of uh, misleading stuff written about this, I think, that, that Freer went ahead and did it off his own bat and he didn't have the backing of the government. And, that, and that, that's not quite the case. So what happened was... Disraeli and Carnivan, his foreign secretary, and Carnivan was replaced by a man called Hicks Beach just before the Wazula War, but they approved in theory of the Confederation policy, provided it could pay for itself. But at that particular time, late 1878, they're also facing a war in Afghanistan with possible Russian involvement. So what they said to Freer was, yes, you know, disabled the Zulu kingdom, but not quite yet. You know, so, so Freer went ahead and did it anyway, like a little bit preemptory, a little bit ahead of what the government wanted. But it's not like he was actually defying the government. You know, people have written some strange things about that. But in terms of the um, the public opinion argument, that, as you say, like for news to reach Britain back in the 1870s, late 1870s, from South Africa, the war could be well over by the time the first reports reached newspapers in Britain. Yeah, and I'm sure that's what Freer reckoned on, you know, so he's going to say he was going to present the government with, well, job done. And the government say, well, well, well done, Sir Bartle, I suppose. But I wonder how does this affect the British view of themselves as benign colonizers that almost like, you know, the white man's burden. There, there's no self-interest whatsoever in uh, British imperialism. Well, you know. It's interesting, I mean, you know, the kind of meeting point between people's uh, self-interest and their justification of what they do, isn't it? I mean, you know, the British strategists and, and officials at the time were quite clear they were doing this because, you know, it was pure self-interest. So, you know, the, the linchpin is, is India. You protect the route to India. South Africa, potentially very lucrative now with diamonds. Certainly you can pay for itself. You know, your, your overall control of South Africa is threatened by native kingdoms so you go and eliminate them you find any reason you can to do so and they, they you know they were in private they're perfectly open about this at the same time they would say to themselves yes we're spreading civilization and christianity they would have said at the time as well and, and that ultimately it would be for their own good now i mean it, you know the other thing about that is not everybody even in colonial society went along with that like for example the bishop the anglican bishop of natal by the name of colenso who left his name to, to a river now in natal you know, he said that this is purely a war of aggression. He said the Zulus didn't do anything to you and it's purely in self-interest. It's nothing to do with advancing Christianity. Like the religious aspect is kind of interesting. I mean, uh, at the time, missionaries made very little headway in, in Zululand because the Zulus were simply not interested. You know, there was mission stations set up and certainly on the borders, one of them at Works Rift where a battle took place later on. But at the time, the Zulus simply weren't very interested. Now, there was other African groups, like especially the Basutu people at the time, some of the Africans in Natal, especially there was a mission at Edendale, and they participated in, in the war. And it was very much bound up with this idea of Europeanizing yourself as well. So you started dressing in European clothes as well when you became a Christian, you know, and you learned how to read and write and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that the British imperialists, you know, at the top of the pyramid knew very well what they were doing and, and that the, the civilizing thing was, you know, really kind of PR, I think. 
so the British present the Zulus with this ultimatum that they know they can't accept. What happens next? Well, you know, as he said, the British officials on the spot expected it to be all over and done within a short time. And they expected to roll into Zululand, defeat the Zulus and get it out. Chelmsford, who was in command, had three columns invading Zululand, you know, in the, let's say, the, the north, south and centre. He himself was at the centre. The idea was you go in, you trap the Zulu army, you, you annihilate it, and then you impose whatever settlement you want. But it didn't work out like that at all. And that's probably why the Zulu war is so well known, because, you know, Chelmsford was very overconfident. He didn't appreciate what a well-disciplined, well-organised force the Zulus were and, and how cohesively they could move people about. So the Zulus sent 20,000 or so warriors. And when we say warriors, you know, it's not like a war band from Dark Ages Europe. They were organised in, in disciplined regiments. Regiment is, is commanded by Ninduna, who was not a clan chief. Like, he's, a, he's an officer. He's appointed by a king. It's kind of a central bureaucracy almost, you know. And Chelmsford did not fortify his camp, as, for example, the Boers advised him to do at East San Luana, which is kind of about 20 kilometres inside of Zululand. Then he split his force. He took most of, roughly most of his force out into the hills looking for the Zulus. He didn't really designate who was going to be in command of the camp. So there was the commander of infantry. It was a man by the name of Pulain. Pulain was married incidentally to an Irish woman from Formoy. And another Irish-born man, Durnford, who commanded the native auxiliary troops, who was born in County Leitrim, Moho County Leitrim. Both of them were colonels and it wasn't clear who was going to be in command. Uh, so Chelmsford made all these kind of sloppy errors, you know, elementary errors. So short version is that the 2,000 odd troops in the camp were annihilated by the force of 20,000 Zulus. And um, Chelmsford was out in the hills about 12 miles away and he refused to come back because he said it would be impossible that a bunch of, of spear-wielding Africans could defeat 1,000 regular British infantry who we left there. And by the time he, he was convinced there was an attack on the camp going on, you know, he came back and he found virtually the entire strength of the camp butchered at the foot of Mount Isandwana. Well, one of the things that they talk about with the military tactics of the Zulu and in the film, the Michael Caine film, somebody describes it by drawing it in the dust with a stick. But the idea of the Zulu army moving like a cow's head with horns. Can you explain that? Yeah, the horns of the buffalo. Yeah, it's, it's, great scene. Buff- it's a great scene in the film, isn't it? Incidentally, you know, the, the, char- the character Ardendorf in the film did exist, but he wasn't a boar, like he's shown in the in the movie. He was actually Swiss, I think. Anyways, um, no, yeah, the, the Horns of the Buffalo is the classic Zulu kind of formation. So, but again, it gives you an idea of how well-disciplined and well-organized they were, you know? So you had the the head, which is like the full-on, the frontal attack. Then you have the horns, which go around to outflank the force. And then you have what's called the lions, which is the reserve force. And, and typically the oldest warriors would be put in the reserve, the lions. Uh, youngest warriors to be put in the horns, you know, the fastest, the fittest, who race around the sides. And uh, I, can, I guess the warriors of the middle age, late, late 20s perhaps, were, were in the head. And that's exactly what happened at East Santa Ana. So the British were, you know, they hadn't fortified the camp. They hadn't even retreated into the camp. They had a skirmishing line uh, on the outskirts of the camp, firing at the head. And the horns raced around the sides uh, and then flanked them and drove them back into the camp. And after that, it was all over. So what is the reaction to this defeat? Yeah, well, it's tempered a little bit by the very famous action at Rourke's Rift. Rourke's Rift was a mission station just on the Natal side of the river. You know, the, I love the film Zulu, but it's totally, totally inaccurate, you know, as far as the history, because, you know, it starts, you know, there's the missionary with Adulundi at the Zulu capital, and he, and he says, oh, no, while I was here talking peace, a war started. You know, it's, the British started the war, simple as that. Second thing is Quechua, and, and I should pronounce it, by the way, uh, Chihuahua. 
you know, that's the correct pronunciation. I'm not going to do that, though. Zulu <laughs> is not quite up to that. No, uh, Ketchweo ordered his, his generals, do not cross into Natal. See, we said this is a war of aggression against us. We don't want to lose that moral superiority, if you like, by crossing over in Natal. But his brother, Dabu Lamanzi, was in command of the Lions at Isan Luana, the reserve force. And they hadn't been involved in the, the great battle at Isan Luana, where they annihilated the British force there. So he led his force down into Natal. And the idea was he was going to get some of the glory for himself. So he thought he'd wipe out this small post. It was around 150 British soldiers there. Double Mansi's force was 3,000 to 4,000, I believe. And they attacked it for, you know, most of the evening. This is the 22nd of January, the same as day as the battle at East Luana. They attacked it for most of the evening and the night. But they couldn't take it. And, and quite a few of them were killed. And this was presented afterwards in the British press as, you know, this gallant stand saved Natal from savage invasion. Almost none of which was was true, you know. As we're talking about like the links between Ireland and uh, Anglo-Zulu War, there is links between Ireland and Rourke's Drift. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. So Jim Rourke, I mean, in Zulu terms, it was known as Qua Jim, Jim's place. Jim Rourke was the son of settlers who came in the eighteen twenties. So the British sponsored um, some convicts, I believe, like Australia, but an awful lot of uh, assisted passages in the eighteen twenties from. Britain and Ireland to South Africa to try to settle it with English-speaking settlers as opposed to the Boers who they had there in terms of, of Europeans or whites. Um, and one of them was Jim Rourke's father and his brothers. And Jim Rourke was born, I think, in Cape Province, but he, he came east to Natal and, and set himself up there in a border trading post. He married a Boer woman and he served in the colonial militia along the border, policing Natal. But Jim did not survive to see the War of 1879 because he shot himself in the 1870s According to local legend, he shot himself because a consignment of gin, which was supposed to come to his trading post, never arrived. Uh, and so he, he apparently shot himself. I don't know the truth of that one, I'm afraid. What was the reaction back in Britain to the defeat? It was very carefully mediated. You know, you think kind of media narratives and stuff are new, but they're not, you know. So there's this great shock, obviously, that a savage army can defeat, you know, a regular European army. You know, just on a technical military level, you know, they never should have been able to do it, right? Because, you know, had the forces been employed sensibly by Chelmsford, it never, never should have happened. But, you know, and there's this kind of great fear as well of, you know, because, and also let's not mince words, you know, what happened at East Saint Luana in terms of like the British force, Chelmsford's force came back and discovered the camp. And, you know, one and a half thousand men were killed, stabbed, mutilated, like the Zulus would uh, slit the abdomen open of a man after they killed him to release the, the spirits from the corpse as they believed but they, they found people hung on butchers hooks all kinds of stuff you, you know the Zulus played war for keeps put it that way they took no prisoners they literally took no prisoners and so from the point of view of the government the Israeli's government the idea was we you know where we, we told you not to do this and you went ahead and did it anyway so that's one thing secondly though even though we have a war in the go in Afghanistan as well you know we can't let this slide so you have to send loads of loads more troops to South Africa to do the job properly so that the imperial prestige is not damaged. You know, that was the big thing. And what is the result then when these new British reinforcements arrive in South Africa? Well, predictably enough. I mean, they, they eventually went and, and crushed the Zulu kingdom. Now, it took a little while. I mean, we're talking about January where the Battle of East and Luana happened. And there was a number of intermediate battles where it was shown that, you know, concentrated forces, even greatly outnumbered British forces with their modern weapons, you know, and we're talking about rifles that can fire about 12 times a minute to up to 800 metres. You're talking about artillery. You're talking about early machine guns, the Gatling gun. You know, when these are employed sensibly 
uh, and especially in kind of fortified camps, they can be 20, 30,000 Zulu warriors. And this is what happened at various battles of Kambula at a place called Jinjin Lovu, again, a difficult one to pronounce. And finally, Chelmsford led a second invasion to the Quechua siege or his capital at Ulundi. And at the Battle of Ulundi, he again defeated the Zulu army. Again, just with overwhelming firepower, burned the capital. They also, especially in the second invasion, they burned all the homesteads and villages they found on the way, you know, to teach the Zulus a lesson, as they said. You know, in the second invasion, they killed all the prisoners who they took. You know, this is partly a reaction to San Luana. But by July, the Battle of Ulundi was July the 4th. You know, so seven months after the war had started, they, they had crushed the Zulu kingdom. Chelmsford resigned. The government was looking for his head because of A, Isan Luana, and B, not bringing it quickly to an end after. And he was replaced with Sir Garnet Wolseley, who was, you know, the star British general of the era, born in, in Dublin, incidentally. And Wolseley tracked down Quechua, took him prisoner, took him first to Cape Town and then to London, where actually he made quite a good impression. But they did not annex Zulu land immediately. What they did was they partitioned it among 13 different clan chieftains. They broke up the army, and that's been the objective, and they appointed a British resident. So, you know, technically it was, as you said before, something like a princely state, and it took them until 1887 to actually annex Zululand. Well, you mentioned there the destruction of Zulu villages and, you know, food supplies and things like that. But the amount of Zulus who were killed must have been enormous. Yeah, I mean, you know, the a guy called John Laband, whose book I was reading recently, talks about how, you know, the Zulus' great strength in their military organization, they're kind of conventional, if you like, in European terms, military, you know, that went out in big numbers looking for big battles was also a weakness, you know, because they couldn't adapt it to kind of, say, guerrilla warfare, where they could have used their knowledge of the countryside and stuff more effectively. And also, I mean, the Zulus had quite a lot of firearms, you know, in terms of they had probably a musket or a rifle for every warrior by 1879. They just, they weren't particularly proficient at using them. And um, they also captured an awful lot of modern British weapons at, at Isandamana, but they didn't, you know, they, that, their way of war was was other. Their way of war was to charge home with the, with the stabbing spear. And yeah, there was, we think about between six and 8,000 Zulu warriors killed in these stand-up battles. But I mean, you know, from any battle that we have records of, uh, from societies that kept records, the amount of wounded per killed would be a much higher. And in the Zulu case, you know, they didn't have the means to treat kind of bullet wounds. And the bullets used at the time created, you know, more terrible wounds than bullets today because they were made of soft lead and they shattered an impact. So, you know, you're looking at probably up to 10,000 Zulu warriors killed within the six-month period. And then that doesn't count the civilian deaths as well, particularly when food supplies are targeted and dwellings and villages. The only, the only saving grace, though, for this British campaign is they generally didn't kill civilians very much directly because, um, again, the Zulu way of war was not guerrilla warfare hiding among the people. It was, you know, coming out and facing them in pitched battles. And, and to this as well, you can, you know, some of this kind of respect that the Zulus kind of garnered was that, you know, they were stand-up fighters. Generally, civilians weren't killed. In terms of famine and stuff like that, had it gone on any longer, yes, it would have absolutely produced famine. But, like, the second campaign especially was quite short. It was from June to July. So... I mean, destruction certainly would have caused deaths and hardship, but it didn't provoke a massive famine because it just was, it was quite short. Well, you mentioned Garnet Wolseley there. Can we talk about some of the Irish officers who were involved in the war? Yeah, so you do find a lot of Irish officers and Irish-born officers involved. Uh, Garnet Wolseley is, is obviously the most high-ranking one. He, Wolseley, I mean, didn't actually participate in any of the major battles of the war, but he did capture Quechua and he was the man who imposed the partition settlement on Zululand. Mostly lived in Ireland until he was 18. He was from a military family. 
his grandfather apparently had squandered all the family's fortune. But, you know, everyone and all the young men in the army, in the family, went into the army, mostly himself, served from in Crimea, in India, in Canada, where he put down, incidentally, he, he had a role in, in fighting off the Fenian raids from America, but also a, a rebellion of kind of French Canadians. He fought the Ashanti Wars in what's now Ghana. He fought in Egypt and Sudan after Zululand. But, you know, it, it's interesting, though. I mean, it, you know, I, I've had discussions with Sean Gannon, who's a scholar of Ireland and the British Empire. And Sean will tell me, well, obviously, he was Irish. He lived in Ireland until he was 18. He was grew up in an Irish context. But, you know, in Sean, one of Sean's own articles, you know, he quotes Wolseley and he said, Wolseley said Ireland was an entirely a foreign country, dirty paddy land. He was amused to hear the people speak English. They were a provokingly inconsequent people, the Irish. You know, for me, the likes of Wolseley, you know, they, they were a military family in Ireland. I'm not so sure Wolseley thought of himself as Irish. Durnford, it was uh, one of the two commanders, because no one was quite sure who was in command at East Luana, was born in Leitrim. But similarly, he was from an army family. He was educated in Germany and the military academy at Woolwich in London and so on. And another officer who, who died in disease in the campaign, John Wynne, who was also from Dublin, son of a Royal Artillery captain. His mother was the daughter of a Royal Navy Admiral and so on. So you have a lot of Irish born officers, some of them quite a lot of them from kind of military families who, who just kind of happened to be born in Ireland, I would say. Some of them had, had kind of deeper roots. Uh, Neville Coggle, who was uh, posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross for attempting to save the colours at East Luana. Now, I got a good comment on Twitter after the article saying, uh, wait, he was given the Victoria Cross for trying to save the colours while he, he ran away and left his men to their fate. And that's an interesting one because Wolseley himself thought that. He, he was horrified that people were getting their, getting the Victoria Cross for having run away from their men. Anyway, Lieutenant Coggle was born in Dublin, but he was the son of a baron and the cousin of the Protestant Bishop of Meath. So, you know, deep inside the Protestant kind of gentry community, educated in England, but served also in the Dublin militia. But, you know, there, there's lots. I mean, Captain Hugh Goff of the Coldstream Guards died in the Zulu War. Robert Barton, who I think was an ancestor of both Robert Barton and Erskine Childers, you know, of later nationalist fame. In a list that I found, there's of 113 officers who were killed in action in the Zulu War. You know, 13 of them at least were, were born in Ireland. And there was others, I mean, disproportionately, as I say, and I think this is important, like they were from military backgrounds, from gentry backgrounds, but there was some from the kind of Irish Catholic background, including some senior ones. Cornelius Francis Cleary, who was the head of Chelmsford staff, who later tried to put all the blame for San Luana on, on other people, on Chelmsford himself, and another officer called Creelock, whom he didn't like. But uh, Cleary was a Catholic. He was from Cork. He was educated at Clongos, you know, the elite Catholic school. And there were some Irish Catholics who were in senior positions in the British Empire and in the British Army at the time. There was a few more generals, Walter Butler and, and Kevin Kelly, who were close associates of Wolseley, who were kind of Irish Catholics, and some of them were supporters of Home Rule as well. But, you know, they're very much the minority. So, like, Irish Catholics, is, so, you know, not to divide up in a sectarian manner here, but the majority of the Irish population, they formed about 20% of the British Army at the time, the rank and file. And for example, the 88th Regiment, the Connacht Rangers served in Zululand in the war, but there were about 4% of the officer corps. So as you get higher up, it becomes, it does become very much a majority kind of military family, Anglo-Irish for want of a better word, gentry kind of thing to be a high level person in the British Empire. That's the regular forces. What's also interesting is Irish people, Irish men who serve in these kind of colonial or auxiliary forces in Zululand and the one that stands out is George Hamilton Brown. One reason being that, like a lot of people who are well-known, he left a memoir, but also he had a terrible reputation. Now, Hamilton Brown was the commander of a regiment of the Natal native contingent, 
And he, he's described in, all, in many of the sources as, as an Irishman, a hard-bitten Irish contractor in one source. He was actually born in Cheltenham in England, but he was from a gentry family with its, its seat in County Derry in a place called Comber House. He was a younger son, so he didn't inherit any of the family's land. He adventured all over the British Empire. Um, he was nicknamed Maori because he'd fought against the Maoris in, in New Zealand before he came to South Africa. He was put in command. He never served in the regular army, but he was put in command of the Natal native contingent in Zululand. And he had a terrible reputation. He used to refer to them as curs and scum. He, he was one of the men who, after the Battle of Rourke's Rift, the, the killing of all the uh, wounded Zulus who they found near the post, you know, he had them bayoneted uh, and shot, and he had some of them hung as well at, at Rourke's Rift, and also torture of prisoners in some cases and burning of villages. You know, real bad apple. And Hamilton Brown also served with Cecil Rhodes later on in the conquest of what they afterwards termed Rhodesia. There was also, I mean, people people with a much less sinister reputation like John Darknell, who was uh, he was born in Canada. His father was a military surgeon from County Limerick and he had served in the County Down Regiment before uh, settling in South Africa, where he was put in charge of raising the Natal Mounted Police, which is, you know, kind of kind of a paramilitary police force along the lines, I suppose, of the, the Mounties in Canada. And in terms of the enlisted soldiers who served there, have we any idea what percentage roughly were Irish soldiers? It's kind of hard to tell, though, because, I mean, there was one Irish regiment, as I said, which served in Zululand. That was the 88th Regiment, or it was a battalion, rather, of the 88th Regiment, the Connacht Rangers. At the time, the British Army was just undergoing a kind of reorganisation. So in 1881, they did away with numbered regiments and they replaced them with named regiments. So they became formally the Connacht Rangers, for example, the 88th in 1881, and the 24th Regiment, which lost the battalion at Isan Luana, you know, was renamed the South Wales Borderers. But before that, there were numbered regiments, and though, although they would be associated with the place, they could be based anywhere and they could recruit anywhere. So what you see is quite a lot of Irish, for example, in the 24th, because the 24th was stationed in Ireland and had a recruiting depot, they would be recruited to that. You know, there, there wasn't such a strict geographical basis to, to regiments before 1881. Now, there's a book, for example, A Bloody Night about work Shrift, which says that 35 out of the 150 British soldiers or servicemen there were Irish. Um, apparently, this is stretching it a bit because it includes people with Irish names and descent who weren't born in Ireland. About 15 of that 150 were born in Ireland. So in that particular campaign in the Zulu War, between 10 and 20 percent of the rank and file British soldiers would have been Irish born. One of the things that I was thinking about when we were talking about doing this podcast is how nowadays we don't really think about the Irish diaspora in South Africa at all. Whereas in the past, like during the War of Independence, they were one of these foreign diaspora that were appealed to for funds, that stuff. Propaganda was sent towards them during the Talton Games in the 20s and the 30s. There would have been a South African team of Irish people or people of Irish descent. We don't really think about the South African Irish diaspora at all. If we do think about South Africans, we think of you know, white South Africans who are either Boers or English speakers. We don't tend to think about the Irish South Africans at all that much nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they might have been acculturated over the decades and century into kind of the English-speaking South Africans, English-speaking white South Africans. At the time we're talking about the Zulu War, there was a very nascent kind of group of Irish. Um, a lot of them would have been miners in the diamond mines. And, and they kind of started arriving in, in bigger numbers when gold was discovered, which is a little bit later in Kimberley, which was at the time in the Orange Free State, I think. 
so you know at the time we're talking about there was Irish settlers John Rourke was one for example not in huge numbers and a lot of them arrived in kind of the 1880s and 90s to work in the mines I think and by the time you're talking about the 1920s and 30s I mean yeah it was substantial and especially because of their religion I mean they were distinctive for quite a while I believe but someone could probably speak with more authority than me on you know what became of the Irish community in South Africa. Now our conversation does lead in and we mentioned it briefly at the start into concepts of Ireland as either the victims of colonialism or the perpetrators of colonialism and even within the last couple of weeks there's been quite a few newspaper articles from historians about this and when we look at something like the Anglo-Zulu War and Irish participation in it, uh, how does that play into the whole arguments about Ireland and colonialism? Yeah, I mean, I'll get back to the kind of current arguments in, in a little while. But like just on the Zulu War, basically, there's there's two, a couple of things. So uh, certainly lots of Irish people participated in the Zulu War. As you go higher up the scale, you know, they're disproportionately, as I said, from you know, military Anglo-Irish gentry kind of background, you know, and that's not to say so what Catholic nationalists were innocent and, you know, Protestant Anglo-Irish were guilty, but that's a fact, okay? The people making decisions who were Irish were disproportionately from that background. And I don't think it's too much to say that they were kind of a colonial class in Ireland itself. They were the people who ran the administration at the time. And this is just as the land war is starting, they're still the people who own almost all the land in Ireland and most of the wealth and, and most of the big business at the same time, you know, whereas in the past, like Irish Catholics were systematically discriminated against by the penal laws, you know, that had all been wound up by 1879. You know, the last thing to go was the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland itself in 1869. You know, so you do see some Irish Catholics beginning to kind of climb the ranks and they're not disabled in the same way as, for example, Black South Africans were or Indians and, and so on. At the same time, though, and I mean, I think this is what the main thing that this current conversation is missing, if you look at the reaction in Ireland itself, you know, there's a very wide amount of public opinion and political activists who are dead set against the war and actually pro-Zulu, like actively pro-Zulu in what they said about the Zulu war. Well, yes, in your article on the Irish Story website, you can see things like land meetings. And this is what I found so fascinating that it's these huge public monster meetings the attendees were very well aware of what was happening. They didn't need to have the participants explain to them. And there was huge public support for the Zulus. Yeah, I mean, rhetorical support anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this goes from, say, Navan, where there was a big land league meeting with Parnell himself, uh, where three cheers were, were raised for Ketchweo, uh, the Zulu king. You know, County Mayo, County Galway, County Sligo, where Michael Davitt and others were speaking. And people would unprompted cheer for the Zulus, and this was endorsed from the platform. And I think this is, I suspect the meetings were a bit more interactive in those days, you know, than they might be today. And Michael Davitt, for example, said, you know, said, yes, you're right to cheer for the Zulus. The Zulus wield the Asagai, which is a name for a spear. Um, it's not actually the Zulu name. That's a big misconception. But we'll come back to that. The Zulus wield the Asagai just the same as our ancestors in 98, 1798, wielded the pike. And they're fighting for their freedom the same way as our ancestors were. And you get this rhetoric all the time from Irish nationalists. Paul Townend has written a very good paper on this, and he shows that, you know, in Land League meetings in Cork City, where a war correspondent, Archibald Forbes, tried to give a talk on the Zulu War, it was disrupted by crowds who gave three cheers for the Zulu king. They said, we don't want to hear your version, you know, your, your appropriate version. 
in Dublin, there was a theatre performance which was attended by the Lord Lieutenant. And the crowd hissed him uh, and they raised three cheers for the Zulus. And the nationalist press also, you know, the, the flag of Ireland, which was a pro-Fenian paper, there was no openly pro-Fenian papers because they, they were banned back in the 1860s, but they denounced the invasion, for example, as odious predatory incursion upon the territory of a free people. The nation, which went back to the young Irelanders, said the British were waging a war of extermination such as they had waged in the Elizabethan time in Ireland, burning the homes of those people whose land they had invaded and hunting them down like brutes. And they also go on to name specific, you know, Elizabethan commanders like Sir John Davis, and they compare them to what's going on in Zululand. You know, and this is really common, you know, that there's across the nationalist press, there's all this kind of explicit opposition to empire and saying, you know, the Zulus are right, they're patriotic and they're fighting for their freedom, including members of parliament, like an MP Sullivan of Louth, said the Zulus were patriotic and were defending themselves against aggressive imperialism. And Parnell himself said that both the Zulus and the Irish peasant soldiers, as he called them, Parnell is kind of a patrician figure, of course, he said they were victims of the Holocaust of imperialism. So it does call into question, though, this idea that, you know, the Irish were enthusiastic about empire. I don't think that's the case at all, actually. In terms of active involvement, now there is a difference. I mean, there is obviously a big cultural kind of chasm between, say, the Irish and the Zulus. So there was a rumour that a uh, Athenian diamond miner, McCarthy, was fighting for the Zulus. That uh, probably wasn't true. It was reported that there was an Irish Zulu chieftain called John Dunn. That was true, but he, he wasn't actually Irish. He was of Scottish ancestry. John Dunn um, had kind of become a Zulu chieftain and, and a kind of conduit for them to import arms. He had 48 wives, incidentally, and hundreds of children. But he was of Scottish ancestry, not Irish. The point I'm making, though, is that, you know, there's this assumption nowadays, well, the Irish were white colonizers and stuff like this. They supported the British Empire. They benefited from it. And I don't believe that to be the case at all. You know, I mean, it's certainly not the case in, in terms of radical nationalists. The only thing is, I will say, is that, you know, 20 years on in the Second Boer War, a unit of Irish volunteers actually fought for the Boers. And there wasn't any Irish fighting for the Zulus, as, as far as I know. And it's unlikely that there would have been. That is exactly what you're saying there. There doesn't seem to be that identification with empire and pride in being part of the United Kingdom and the wider British Empire. Uh, it seems to be just enormous opposition. Yeah, no, you know, a Irish society is not just one thing. So there were people who supported the British Empire, I mean, ardently in Ireland. And there are people who acquiesced in it. I mean, there's newspapers that said, well, this is this may be an unjust war, but we have to support our troops kind of thing. You know, so this it's not just the one thing, but there's a very large amount of public opinion. And this is the time of the land war, which is a big mobilization, you know, really for, for land and for agrarian issues. But it's of a very nationalist kind of view. And, you know, there's a very large proportion of the population that sees themselves as victims of colonialism and is against the British Empire explicitly and openly against it. Yes, and particularly in that context where people's uh, homes and land is being threatened by, in some cases, uniformed British soldiers coming in to do the evicting. And in the longer context of the famine, it's not surprising that there wouldn't have been much enthusiasm for British forces in South Africa, who appear to be doing the same thing to native populations in the Zululand. Yeah. Now, I can't say this was the exclusive opinion or this is, you know, the majority. Or, well, I, I can't say what was the majority and what was the minority, but it was very widespread opinion. You know, this is huge meetings of the Land League in places like Westport, County Mayo and in Galway and Sligo and, and, and many other places. And this is the majority opinion there. This is the opinion expressed, you know. And even, you know, I mean, David, for example, you know, says we, we are the brethren of the savage Zulu or something like that. So there, it's not that they're above kind of European stereotypes about Africans. But they're not in favor of the British Empire at all. I mean, they, they explicitly say we hope the Zulus win. I mean, there's 
there's even poems and songs, you know, printed in the nation, praising the Zulus and saying, you know, it, it had warmed every good man's heart, the Zulu victory at East San Luana, you know. And this is not enthusiasm for empire. That's not what's going on. Well, one of the things that would be really good if it came out of all this introspection about Ireland and empire is just to see what role Irish soldiers, administrators, governors played in the wider British empire. Because we do sometimes forget just how vast the British Empire was. That's the thing, you know, we think of Britain today and this stuff about global Britain following Brexit. Britain today, is, it doesn't resemble the British Empire. I mean, the British Empire runs from places like India to Malaysia to Singapore to Hong Kong to Southern Africa to West Africa, East Africa, North Africa, you know, the Middle East. And we had a previous show about that, Carl. You know, it, it's a massive worldwide empire. You know, there's nothing like it in the world today. Yes, and maybe I, I don't know enough about it, but it's worth looking into. The idea that ordinary people in Britain, and in England in particular, had this huge affiliation and pride in the British Empire. Yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't read the historiography about that, but I, I strongly suspect that the average person in Britain was not necessarily that and one thing to bear in mind, actually, is even in a political context in Britain, you know, there was one party, the Conservative Party, the Tory party, which was much more enthusiastic about it than the other one, the Liberal Party, like Gladstone, who came into power partly as a result of the humiliations of the Zulu War, you know, in part, in later 1879, was basically anti-imperialist. And his policy in Ireland also reflects this, you know, he was in favour of, of land reform and stuff like this, and home rule. So, you know, you know, British public opinion is not just imperialist as well, you know, and in terms of the Zulu War, it's not like Ireland where there's a large body of opinion that's pro-Zulu, but there is a large body of opinion that says this was an unjust war, you know, and this was provoked for no reason, and that, we, you know, we conquered a, a people who had done nothing to us. So, you know, there's opposition or mediation, let's say, of the imperialist message in Britain itself as well. So, John, what happened to Zululand then afterwards when all the war was concluded? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that is that a lot of accounts of it, because they're just interested in like this, you know, very striking clash between Redcoats and Zulu warriors, and they stop in July 1879 with the Battle of Ulundi. But, you know, as far as the Zulus were concerned, that was only the start of their travails, their woes, if you like, because the British settlement was to partition Zululand among 13 different petty kingdoms with a British resident. And, you know, predictably enough, I suppose, they, they started fighting among each other. The British were prevailed upon to bring back Quechua, the king, in 1882 to try to kind of restore order to Zululand. But this made it worse because his faction, if you like the royalist faction, who were called the Asutu, you know, tried to win back power for the monarchy. And they were defeated by one of Quechua's former main generals, actually, in a great battle where thousands of Zulu warriors were killed again. And the king had a council called an Iblanda, I think is the correct pronunciation. Many of them were, were killed after this battle. That really broke up many of the structures of the Zulu kingdom that the British hadn't managed to destroy. You know, it, it killed off many of the senior kind of men in the kingdom. The civil war kind of spluttered on and, and Quechua himself died, but his son, the Zulu, continued on trying to restore the monarchy and he enlisted help from an unlikely ally, the Boers. The Boers were, whatever else you want to say about them, were very formidable kind of warriors in an African context themselves with their, with their rifles and their, their horses. But the Zulu enlisted them to fight against his rivals. And when the British saw this, they finally decided they had to put a stop to it, and they annexed Zululand in 1887. And there was another brief war between Dinizulu, the aspiring king, 
and the British in 1888, which was fairly quickly put down. It was nothing like the war of 1879, but Zululand was the next. It was opened to white settlement after the Boer War in 1902, and part of it was kind of uh, developed for sugarcane farming, and there was coal mines established there. But the main thing, the main thing the British wanted from Zululand and from the other kind of African kingdoms was uh, labor. So many of the Africans didn't want to work necessarily for the Europeans in their mines and stuff like that. And the way the British found, or the authorities in Natal, because Natal was granted self-government, was to impose a poll tax. So if people had to pay a tax, then they needed money. And the only way to get money was to send their young men off to work in the mines in Kimberley and, and elsewhere, Johannesburg. And there was a, a, the last real Zulu uprising was led by a man called Bambatha, um, with, with only kind of tangential support from the monarchy, but in 1906, and that was against the poll tax. It was against having to pay this tax which was also going to destroy their way of life. And that was put down. I think there was something like 3,000 Zulus killed to about, you know, something like six Natal police were killed. But after that, I mean, you know, you're looking at, we always kind of use a shorthand for South Africa and it's, it's racial divisions apartheid. But I mean, under British rule, yeah, more or less had apartheid light. There was a certain amount of fig leaf in the sense that uh, black and colored people could get the franchise and could become fully enfranchised. But, you know, that was very rare. In the case of Zululand, you know, a lot of the best land was taken by white settlers afterwards. So, you know, the, the Zulu certainly didn't prosper under, under British rule, I wouldn't say. And, you know, their story becomes more complicated as we move into the 20th century. I mean, under the apartheid regime and the African and nationalist kind of regime from 1848 onwards, uh, Zululand was made a, a nominally an independent kingdom again, uh, Bantustan. But again, you know, I mean, very circumscribed. And the idea was basically just to keep the majority black population out of the cities, except as kind of migrant workers. But the Zulu Nationalist Party in Kata, which was very interestingly, I mean, Butelezi, Mangasutu Butelezi, who was the head of the party, was not the king of the Zulus, but he was a member of the royal house. I mean, Quechua was an ancestor of his. He used the kind of Zulu nationalism in a very cynical way in the end. He allied with the, with the government against the ANC in the 80s and 90s in kind of very murky episodes. You know, since 1994 and the, the first democratic, fully democratic elections in South Africa, Nkata has kind of faded. But, you know, you've had Zulu uh, presidents like Jacob Zuma of the ANC. Uh, and Zulu Zulu language is the biggest single language in South Africa. So, you know, their, their history since the Zulu war is very long and complicated and it shouldn't just stop in, at 1879. Well, John, we might wind it up there for this episode. Um, if anyone is interested... John's written a great article for the Irish Story website about all this stuff. So you can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, we'd love if you could please rate or review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher or whichever podcast platform you get your podcasts on. It really does help us and we really appreciate it. And please, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode you've heard, Please share it on your social media too, and then more people can become aware of the show. So, on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.